Chapter 15 of St. Luke's Gospel begins with the tax collectors and uh, sinners gathering around Jesus. In other words, these were the scourge of ancient society. These were the worst of the worst people imaginable, traitors and defilers. They had gathered around Jesus to listen to him speak. And St. Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes who held the true faith, who were the most pure and pious and loyal to Yahweh, the God of Israel, grumbled in incredulity. This man welcomes sinners. And not only that, he eats with them. This so-called rabbi, this teacher, welcomes the very worst of sinners and invites them into our presence. Who does this guy think he is? Where does he get off? And Jesus responds by telling three stories. The first is a story about a lost sheep. The second is a story about a lost coin. And the third, the one we heard today, is a story about a lost son and his family. Our reading said that this lost son had squandered uh, all that his, his family's possessions. He'd abandoned his family and wandered off to a distant land. He'd wandered far from home. And those words, he'd wandered far from home, uh, also were the words that spilled from the lips of Bennett to Roof on the June 18th, 2015, when he told the Charleston police tip line that the person they were looking for on a manhunt for was his son, Dylan. He said, my son has gotten himself lost. And I keep hoping he'll come to his senses. Dylan had wandered and gotten himself lost. The previous night, 21-year-old Dylan had um, attended a Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Church in Charleston, South Carolina, known affectionately as Mother Emmanuel. It was one of the oldest black congregations to be established south of Baltimore after the American Civil War. And the church's pastor was there with 12 other members of the church for their usual Wednesday night Bible study. And they they welcomed Dylan. They handed him a Bible. They pulled up a chair for him. They gave him a copy of their study guide. Unbeknownst to them, they had prepared a table in the midst of their enemy. Over the next hour, they read the Gospel of Mark together and the parable of the sower. And then as they all bowed their heads to pray at the end of the evening, Dylan, as he'd rehearsed time and time again, pulled a gun from his backpack and for the next six minutes fired 88 bullets, the number symbolic for the words, Hail Hitler, as he spouted racial slurs and white supremacist sentiments. He wandered out of that Bible study, a son even more lost than when he'd wandered in. A few days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property, his family's property, in dissolute living. This son had asked for his inheritance, his share of his family's estate early. The fifth commandment of the law of Moses says, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
Far from honoring his parents, the son of Jesus' story had asked for his inheritance early, which was synonymous with wishing them dead. And he wandered from the land that God had given them. I imagine Jesus casting an eye to the religious elite in the crowd, the Pharisees and the scribes, and looking at them with a look as if to say, oh, you think this crowd of people around me is bad? Well, let me tell you a story about a real bad person, someone who is truly awful, a son who sunk as low as you could get. He turned his back on his own family, cast himself off. He wandered and got lost. Dylan Roof appeared before a magistrate two days after the cold-blooded murder of nine of his fellow Bible study companions. And before the hearing concluded, the judge read the names of the victims, later known as the Emmanuel Nine, slowly and carefully. After this, the judge invited the families of the victims to come forward and speak if they wanted to, to say something. Nadine Collier, who was the youngest daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, who had served as the church's verger, stood up to speak and came forward to the microphone. And Dylan Roof watched on from a video link wearing the usual striped pajamas of a prisoner flanked by two heavily armed Kevlar-suited security guards. Nadine addressed this lost son directly, saying, I just want everyone to know, to you, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgives you, and I forgive you. Next, Anthony Thompson, the husband of 59-year-old Myra Thompson, a regular teacher at the Bible study, got up to speak and whispered into the microphone so quietly that the judge had to ask him to speak up. And he said, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. And we invite you to repent to give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change you. And he can change your ways no matter what happens to you. Next, Felicia Sanders, the mother of the youngest victim, 26-year-old Taiwanza Sanders, took the microphone and said to her son's murderer, We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. Taiwanza Sanders is my son, but he was also my hero. And as we say in Bible study, we enjoyed you. But may God have grace and mercy on you. In preparing for this hearing, each uh, family member of the victims thought that they, they hadn't prepared anything to say. They were planning on not saying anything, in fact. They were going to be silent. But as it happened, every person that spoke, beginning with Nadine Collier, uh, offered Dylan Roof forgiveness. 
And they said that they felt compelled, urged, and moved by the Spirit of God to say those three words, which are so often the hardest three words to say. Let alone the hardest three words to say with any degree of integrity. They uttered these three unthinkable words to one who had committed the the unthinkable act. I forgive you. In the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel, uh, the rules were very clear on the return of a penitential child, a family member that had disowned their own family. Exodus 21 verse 17 puts it in pretty stark terms. Whoever curses or dishonors or reviles their mother and father shall be put to death. So to the Pharisees who paid attention to every iota of the law, perhaps this lost son deserved death. And if not death, then he most certainly deserved to be subjected to the Jewish custom of kazaza, a cutting off ritual. In Kazaza, when someone had dishonored their family like the lost son had, and when they came home to their family seeking forgiveness, the older um, generations in the family would come out and throw a pot down in front of the penitential person, shattering it into pieces. And this was a symbol, a sign of their broken relationship. It was a sign that the disgraced had been cut off from the family. They were anathema. They had become as good as dead to the family. You can imagine the outrage, the outrage expressed by the lost son's older brother when rather than receiving a just punishment for his sins, he receives an embrace, a warm welcome, a celebration, a completely gratuitous party. In other words, it is the outrageous scandal of grace that leads to the older brother's anger and resentment. He should be eating dirt, not the fattened calf. He should be in sackcloth and ashes, that symbol of mourning and repentance. Not given a new robe and a precious ring. He should be brought to his knees, not swept off his feet and celebrated. And the thing is, the older brother is pretty much right. But Jesus does not tell this story as a story about being right. Jesus tells this story because it's a story about the upside-down kingdom of God, where sinners are not torn down with judgment and condemnation. As let's be honest, when we're not on the receiving end of it, we might like them to. But are instead gifted with grace and mercy. Some say that uh, Jesus taught in parables, in stories, so that the average Joe Bloggs, the average sinner and tax collector that gathered around him, could understand what he was talking about. Clearly, the people that think that haven't read many of Jesus' parables. Because without faith, these kingdom of God stories, these Parables don't make any sense. It's crazy talk. The kingdom of God is downright offensive. The kingdom of God is completely counterintuitive. The kingdom of God is scandalous. It is foolish. It can only be understood when it is seen with the eyes of faith. You have to see it, experience it, 
The kingdom of God has to find flesh in order to be understood. It has to find the heart because it is all about grace. St. Augustine said, don't try to understand in order to believe. Believe in order to understand. I've stood up here before and said uh, something that has lasted in my memory for a long time. The a song that we used to sing in the Church of England school that I went to growing up. Uh, and it stayed with me all these years. And the words are, mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us the things we don't deserve. Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us the things we don't deserve. Grace is a gift which is not self-affirming, it is self-sacrificing. The gift of grace is lavish and totally incongruous. God doesn't give grace enough simply just to cover our sin or match it. God completely outstrips the stain of sin. It is super abundant grace. The gift of grace is totally undeserved and cannot be earned. It is completely unconditional and given at no cost to us, but at cost to God. God requires nothing from us. The gift of grace is not contingent upon our works or our response. It isn't a contract. But the gift of grace does expect a response. In this parable, Jesus is not preaching about some universalized principle of forgiveness. As Stanley Howvass, the Christian theologian, puts it, a God who forgives sinners without giving them something to do is just a God of sentimentality. Grace needs no response, but it expects one. St. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, puts it like this. All of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. Sounds familiar. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. He throws in this little line, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth put it like this. Grace not only pardons, grace empowers. Grace not only pardons, grace empowers. Grace empowers us, the church, you and me, the body of Christ, those who know of their place in Jesus, to live lives that witness to the truth of that upside-down, countercultural, scandalous kingdom of God to live lives that make sense of the kingdom of God, lives of reconciliation, of peacemaking, of love, of joy, and of grace. This isn't something we should do to be in Christ. We already are in 
Christ. These gifts are ours to bless God's broken and hurting world. These gifts are ours to love our neighbor when all we want to do is despise them. These gifts are ours to forgive when we cannot. Yesterday, I um, attended uh, um, a small Orthodox Christian Orthodox Christian service uh, up in Lamberhurst with a small community uh, of Orthodox Christians there. And you should be glad that uh, if you get tired standing up for 10 minutes here, they stand up for two hours. Uh, the, the, the priest said that um, the Orthodox spirit really starts in your feet. Uh, and then after a while, it works up to your stomach when you realize how hungry you are. And eventually, it finds its way into your heart. But the, the priest who was presiding at this service, uh, he said something in his little little sermon that I thought really struck me about the kingdom of God. He said that we, the church, are the ingredients of the kingdom of God. It's like baking a loaf of bread. We're the ingredients of the kingdom of God. When we come together, things change. You could say that the church is the parable of the kingdom of God that Jesus is telling the world today. You are Jesus' story. The uh, Charleston police chief at the time in 2015 uh, said he was in awe of how God's church had rendered every reporter in that courtroom utterly dumbfounded. But while the reporters were speechless, the church was singing. You might remember that amazing um, viral moment when President Barack Obama spontaneously uh, broke into singing Amazing Grace at a speech. And actually that speech was in fact uh, the eulogy given at the funeral of the pastor of Mother Emmanuel, who was also a state senator, hence how he knew the president. He was also a husband, a father, and of course one of Dylan Roof's victims, the Reverend Clementa Pinckney. And just before he broke into song, President Obama recalled the sentiment of Reverend Pinckney's whole ministry, which was all about grace. Saying, if we can tap into that grace, that deep reservoir of goodness, everything can change. Amazing grace. Even the worst of sinners, the most lost of sons and daughters, can be redeemed, can be reconciled, made new. There is no evil so great that the grace of God cannot overcome it. Not even death, let alone death on a cross can resist the gift of God's grace. And by virtue of the fact that we are together here gathered, the body of Christ, we are in Jesus, we know it, even if no one else does yet for themselves, we have already tapped into that amazing grace. The embers of it burn deep within our hearts. So will you stand with me and join me in praying that God will ignite the fire of our hearts.